And if you look at lots of discussion online, you could identify lots of discussion as people not saying the truth. They're saying something to show their loyalty. And not only that, if you belong to a group, you want to say things that are extreme. When I see now on college campuses uh, in the U.S., all kinds of young, young adults saying things like uh, pro-Hamas, you know, I, I, I would have loved to have a discussion with them and say, you know, if, if you gave Hamas now the control over the Middle East, how exactly would it look? How would it be for kids, for women, for um, homosexuals? Uh, what, what are you expecting? Like, what, what kind of, is that really what you, we have, we have created a discourse that is superficial? It's not about the facts. It's not about the way forward. It's just who can shout louder about their identity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very, very special edition of Through Conversations podcast. I'm very excited for this episode because I'm joined by no other than Professor Dan Ariely. Dan is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. He's also a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight and a New York Times best-selling author. Professor Ariely's work focuses on the irrational ways we behave, and he has written extensively on topics such as decision-making, dishonesty, self-control, while also being an entrepreneur. And while doing all of that, he's also written a book, a very very much needed book in these times for, for sure called Misbelief and it is the one the book we'll talk about today what makes rational people behave in irrational believe irrational things so professor Ariely, thank you for joining me today my pleasure lovely to be here i'm very excited because and it's it's a it's a mixed feelings because your book does come on a, on a time where we need it the most there's a lot of things we need to cover today and first of all, I would like to, to discuss with you, you know, your trajectory and how has it been unfolding until today and how you write on misbelief that your journey to self-acceptance has enabled you to write about topics such as misbelief. Yeah, so, so maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'll start by, by saying a little bit about me and my field and I'll start talking about um, why I have half a beard, <laughs> and as an as introduction. So, as, as you know, uh, many years ago I was badly burned. Uh, most of my body is covered with scars, including the right side of my face. All of these are burns. It continues, of course, on my hands. Um, and, and for many years I shaved. And, and you know, I, I don't have hair on this side. I have a little bit here, but not much. Uh, this line of the injury is almost symmetrical, but it's not exactly. Now, when I shave, it's less startling. Now I look very half and half. When I shave, you can see the scars, but, but not as, as well. Um, and for many years, I shaved. And then a few years ago, I went on a month-long hike. I did the Israel Trail. Mm. And uh, during that month, I didn't shave. I didn't look at myself in the mirror. And at the end of this month, I looked a little bit more, but sort of like this. And I looked in the mirror, and I didn't like myself. I didn't like this very, it's a very strange look. It's the, the, the nose hair, the hair. Imagine you woke up one day <laughs> like this. It's a, 
very, it, it, I didn't like it. But I said to myself that this was a result of not shaving for a month. First time I took a month to hike. So I decided to keep the half a beard for a little longer, maybe for a few weeks. And two surprising things happened. The first one was that people wrote me thanking me for the half a beard. Mm. Now, why did people thank me for the half a beard? Uh, not because they liked it aesthetically. These were people who were struggling with their own injuries. And they felt that I was doing this on purpose. I was saying, look how much I don't care. I'm not hiding anything. <clears throat> and people told me that they had a bit more courage uh, to do that. And when, when I got the reactions from people about this, I said, okay, I'll keep the half a beard. If it helps some people, let me keep it. Um, but then the second thing that happened was even more strange and about four months into this half a beard journey, I felt better about myself. Mm. So I have lots of injuries and a lot of deformities, lots of things are wrong with me. Uh, and all of a sudden I felt that this was just a story of my life. Yes, I have pain. Yes, I have disability. Yes, there's all kinds of things I can't do. But I felt that I have this better relationship with my injured self. Mm. And I started wondering why. why, why all of a sudden I got injured when I was, uh, you know, 17 or so. I've, many years have passed. Why now am I feeling better about myself? And here is what I think happened. Imagine somebody like me shaving. If you're a regular person and you shave, you shave. If you're a person like me and you shave, you start the morning with smooth here, dots here. And after the shave, it's smooth here and smooth here. That means that the act of shaving is also an act of hiding asymmetry. Mm. It's also an act of saying, I'm going to look less non-symmetrical. And letting go of it and saying, I just don't care. I'm just accepting who I am was very healing, more healing than I expected. Now, now here's the thing. I'm a social scientist. I think quite a good social scientist. My mother thinks excellent social scientist. <laughs> I could not predict how I would feel four months down the line with this half a beard. Right? In fact, most of my life, I shaved. I did something that was, in retrospect, counterproductive. Mm. But, but I did that because I thought that looking non-symmetrical is not good. And you know what? It's not good for day one. People point, raise fingers, ask questions, and so on. But there's nothing in my arsenal to say how I would feel four months down the line. And, and that's what I think social science is all about. I think social science is all about getting us to have these insights into the places where intuition is not very helpful and giving us some lessons about how to live life in a better way like having a half a beard, <laughs> if that's your injury and acceptance and, and getting us to, to, to recognize those things and try them out. Wow. And, and you, you touch on so many, so many ideas there. And I think that the first one to highlight from my end, professor, is that you touch one of the biggest ways. I don't want to spoil the conversation because we just started, but one of the non-solution solutions in the book, Misbelief, that you write is that we have to nurture resilience in our lives. We have to ask ourselves, 
you know, how can we get out of this this challenge that we're living? And I think that your story and how you've been coping or, you know, putting like a Superman mode in your story and saying like, this is me, this is, I'm, I'm not hiding myself. It's just, you're walking your talk. And so I think that's very important to, to highlight. And I appreciate that because a lot of us in our ways, we, we also face those kinds of challenges. I mean, I'm not comparing, of course, but what I'm saying is it's it's encouraging to see that, you know, while while life can throw us a huge curveball, we can get a big swing like Babe Ruth in our ways. We can we can do that. So, Professor, you yeah. also. So let me let me just say something about resilience. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> um, resilience is really kind of um, one of the most important superpowers that we have. You know, it's about, it's about how much faith do we have that if something will go wrong, somebody would catch us and that we will have, be able to bounce back. And, and I think, sadly, um, resilience is going down because communities are becoming less supportive, because inequality is getting higher, because we spend less time with people and so on. But it's a huge topic for for society. But, but you know, we, we, there's a million things to talk about, but I do want to, you mentioned in the opening a little bit about the book, Misbelief. Yes. So, so I want to, to, to go back a little bit and, and say a little bit about how I started on this journey of misbelief. Yes. So I'm a social scientist and I do research. And then COVID is just starting. Think about early 2020. And I feel that I'm the most useful I've ever been. I get calls from different people, from different governments, different institutions, companies, and people have questions. Distant education, remote work, releasing prisoners, uh, domestic violence, how to pay people when they are on furlough. Endless, endless amount of questions. And I do my best to help as much as possible. I do nothing else, just COVID-related, trying to help people figure out things. And then sometime in July, so, you know, we a few months into it, I get an email that says, Dan, how did you become like this? What happened to you? And I say, what happened to me? And I get a long list of links. I'll describe just one of them. In that link, it shows pictures of me in hospital, very sad pictures. It says I was burned with 70% of my body and spent three years in hospital. But then it says that that made me hate healthy people. And that's why I joined the cabal, Bill Gates and the Illuminati, trying to kill as many healthy people as, as possible. Uh, not true, by the way. <laughs> um, and there were many other links with not the same message, but all of them made me a villain. And my first instinct was to call these people and talk to them. My second instinct was to call some friends and ask them for advice. And I called some friends who are experts in social media. And they all said the same thing. Don't touch it. Don't talk to these people. Don't touch it. But I was very proud I called these people for advice. I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say I couldn't take their advice. Hmm. 
you know, there's something about somebody believe hates you so much and you feel that they are holding wrong information. I had to call them. I had to talk to them. So the next month, I talked to many people. I called people. I talked on, on meetings. I joined podcasts. I talked on the phone. Some people came to meet me personally. And I failed miserably. That was a month of failure, of failing, helping anybody understand my perspective. Instead, I, things just got worse and worse and worse. People hated me more and more. At the end of that month, I gave up. I, I'm a slow learner. It took me a month, but I gave up. And I decided that I'm going to try and study misbelief. I'm going to try and study because, you know, it's one thing to know, oh, some people believe in QAnon. Some people believe the earth is flat. It's, it's very easy to, like, what's happening? Yeah. But... When I talk to somebody and they say to me something about me and I know that that's not true and no matter what data I give them and show them, I show them my calendar, I, I, I can't convince them. That's very eerie. It's very hard to say, how can you talk to somebody? And they say something about you and you say not true and you can't convince them. So... So I spent the next two years in some of the darkest corners of the internet trying to understand what is going on. And, and this book is really an explanation of the psychology of misbelief. How can it be that people out there, that five years ago we would have said we all see the world in the same way, and now we look at them and we say, I understand where are you coming from? How, like something inside is broken. How can you not? It turns out something inside is not broken. And there are reasons for why they end up believing that. And, and, and the first starting point of the book is to understand that we shouldn't discount those people and we shouldn't discount their beliefs. They come to fulfill a real need. Nobody wakes up in the morning and say, I'm going to start believing the earth is flat today, or I'm going to stop believing in, 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 in healthcare or whatever. There are reasons for that, not good reasons. I mean, good psychological reasons to the beliefs that they are adopting. Wow. We, we, should, we should uncover those reasons uh, during this conversation, perhaps the most that we can, because I think those really do give us a lot of resources in terms of resilience too, that I, I, again, your book, Misbelief, for me was a very introspective journey because sometimes we we just, and I, speaking for myself, I've, I've been reflecting on the assumptions I have about the world. And again, like you say, it's very, it's very easy to just look at the other side of the equation on any given subject, any given contention, and say, how can they think that? And then all of a sudden, you see yourself thinking about, about ideas that, I don't remember where did I get those assumptions by at the first place. So I think that's my first question, Professor, is, you know, building resilience in terms of, of introspection, what are some of the ways we can, you know, capture these ideologies, ideas, identities that we have that 
perhaps are not true, but are driving our lives as if they were. Yeah. So, so it's very nice that you're doing this because the easiest way to read this book is a book about them. Let's talk about the people who have a different opinion and so on, but, but you're absolutely right that it's also a book about the nature of our beliefs. And even if we are not conspiracy theorists or if we not have very strong misbeliefs, there, there are still questions about how did we get to believe what we, um, uh, what we believe. Now, the, the process that I describe in the book that we call the funnel of misbelief starts with stress. And it's not just a regular stress to say, oh, look at my calendar, I'm so busy, I'm not sure where I'll finish it. It's the stress that says, I don't understand the world. I don't understand why I'm not doing better. I don't understand why somebody get promoted and I didn't, why nobody loves me, why, all kinds of things like that. It's stress from feeling that I don't understand the world and I'm not getting the share that I deserve. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that stress create? That stress creates a need for a story. So here's an example. Imagine two tribes of fishermen. One tribe is, is fishing in the deep sea. One is fishing in a lake. Which of those two tribes have a bigger level of uncertainty? Obviously, the one in the deep sea, right? There's different storms and weather and the fish move around. And so Which one of those two tribes adapt more superstitions? Also the ones that fish in deep, in deep sea. <laughs> when the world is unexplained, we want something to explain it to ourselves. It doesn't have to be real. It could be superstition, but it's, it's a story. So, so we need a story, but not all stories are made alike. So what are the good stories? Good stories are a story with a villain, like describing me as a villain. And good story is a complex story. Now that's kind of puzzling. Why complex story? Usually we're used to people wanting simple stories. Why do we think that in this case people want a complex story? It's because if society is looking down on me, if I have a complex story, I can feel superior to society. Oh, you think, let me tell you, this is not the case. The FBI is really controlling. NASA is, you know, something, something like that. So a complex story is a story, but it also gives a sense of superiority. And that's very important. So, so the building block is stress. This is the fertile ground. Now, as you have said, Resilience is maybe the best antidote we have to stress. So if you take two people, are they going to react in the same way to stress? Not necessarily. If somebody has a high resilience, if somebody feels loved, supported, and so on, uh, they're less likely to go down the funnel of misbelief. Now, just very quickly, there are three other components, right? There's the cognitive component, the personality yep. component, and the social component that kind of seals the deal. 
So I think of it as, you know, the, the ground is stress. The two pillars are cognitive and personality and social is the, is the lid, mm -hmm. uh, seals the deal. Um, and, and all of those uh, have an impact, but stress and resilience are the, or stress and lack of resilience are the condition that make it even start. Without them, we don't have a problem. Yeah, it, it's perhaps the way, the way I envision it while, while reading Misbelief and while listening to you is how this is the spark that ignites the fire, the stress. And the, I think the biggest question I had for you while reading Misbelief and now that I have you here, in, uh, next, uh, I think virtually or next to me, is that in, you write that in the past few years and now you've, you've said it in the past five years, there's been a lot of dissonance between what we thought about other people and now what we think about them now and their beliefs. And it seems as though, like you mentioned, the pandemic really exacerbated this situation where people just transformed 180 degrees. And so in their, in their ideologies and also my own ideologies, I felt rage during these past few years more than I have ever felt rage. In, in, you said like you write in misbelief this concept of, of moral outrage. And it's really intense and social media does play a role in it. We can uncover that as well. But the question here, Professor, that I have for you is, of course, you, you were in the other side of the equation in terms of vilifying someone. When I, when I see some, someone being vilified, I'm in the, in the consumer side, right? I'm, I'm vilifying. You were receiving this end. And so what did you perceive while, you know, of course, this very stressful situation in which you were the villain of the story. And how did you begin to see all of these mechanisms that I just laid out in terms of what exacerbated this, this moral outrage in the past few years to explain those reasons? Yeah. So, so let me say something about my personal experience. Um, it's very tough. It's very tough. Um, there's, there's a concept in social science called scarcity mindset. And scarcity mindset, we usually connect to poverty. And we say somebody who is very, very poor that needs to worry about where the next meal would come and where they'll pay rent and so on, some of their mental capacity is shrinking because some of their mind is continuously busy with where will I get my next meal and my next payment and so on. I felt it very strongly. I felt that something in my mind was busy all the time with the videos that would come, that would come now. Today, for example, there was a terrible video uh, that came out uh, linking me to the uh, atrocities of Hamas on October 7th. You know, seeing, seeing the, the horrific videos of that and then people linking me uh, to them, uh, it, it's very hard to stop thinking about it, to stop imagining. Even if we try, it, it keeps. So I, I felt very much a scarcity mindset. I felt that I was trying to work, but I don't know, 20% of my mind was busy with these other things. Um, I felt less intelligent, right? I just couldn't, it's, it's very, very palpable, very, very intense. The other thing that happened is at night, 
uh, you know, the, in the day I could control my thinking to a larger extent, but at night, bad thoughts keep on coming up and bad dreams and all kinds of things. And I didn't get a death threat for like in the last month, I think I only got one. But in the beginning, I would get one every day. And it's very, very tough. Even though I didn't think they were going to actually come and kill me, just reading those death threats, I'm preparing my guillotine. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just very, very tough. Now, do we have more of it in recent years? I think that's a, that was the, the other part of your question. Yeah. I think the answer is yes. And I think it's not coming from one thing. I think it's coming from lots of things. So think about the cookie. A cookie has changed with the evolution of cookies <laughs> to attack our senses in the best possible way. A cookie is a combination of fat, sugar, and salt in the ideal combination that would get us to try one and then another one and another one and another one. In the same way, the funnel of misbelief has been perfecting itself over time, almost with the intention of getting us to be misbelievers. And, and social science and, and social science and social media, of course, is doing a big, a big part of that. But it's not the only part. So COVID created almost the perfect opportunity for misbelief because on one hand there was a stress, tremendous stress. What's happening, this virus, the whole world is shutting down, where are we going and so on. People had more time and social media was blossoming. Hmm. So the combination was very, very bad for us as, as, as uh, humanity. The combination was very bad for us. And, you know, some people use the term misinformation or fake news. I don't like this term. I like the term corrosive. Hmm. Why? Because if you call it fake news, it says, oh, I got fake news. I'll get the correct thing and it will even itself out. No, it will not even itself out. If you were exposed to the corrosive news, Another piece of news will not offset it. It, it's, it. it would change you. So if you expose to those things, it does, it does change us to the core, and that's important to understand. It, wow, that's, and it's true. And all of a sudden, I'm craving cookies. I don't know why, Professor, but all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm craving cookies. And I'm, I, you mentioned right now the... I, the nightmare scenario, which is, you know, in itself, the atrocities of October 7th, in itself, in themselves, are a nightmare, an unspeakable nightmare. And then adding that to the equation where you related to that is just, I, can, I cannot imagine it. And I'm, I'm, it's just a nightmare scenario, Professor. But again, I'm stressing out that while I'm seeing you, I, I see resilience. And so that encourages me. It, with my family here, and, and, and I think in a collective scale, we've been discussing the idea that maybe, of course, the pandemic was a very, very serious and catastrophic situation we all 
cope with. I couldn't see my grandpa and my grandma for at least a year. And I had to make decisions, tough decisions to, to at least see them in person. And I just, it, it was very weird. I had to just hug them with my back. It was it was just the world was shifted drastically, and right now you touch on what it's been feeling like a COVID 2.0 in a different different way, which is the the war that's happening in in Israel, a nightmare scenario. And I think there's no better book for for anyone to read than Misbelief because right now the moral outrage, again granted in very in very serious ways and at the same time making it very difficult to build a bridge into how do we where do we go from here and especially for me that I feel anger sometimes real real tangible anger so professor with this crisis in hand you know how can we really identify perhaps the misbeliefs that we have the true beliefs and also how can I bridge a gap between the other side of the equation that for them like you say it's it's legitimate. It's real. It's not a crazy theory. It's it's. Yeah. How can I empathize with them? Yeah. So, so look, what's happening uh, in in Israel in Gaza uh, is is certainly horrific, and I would say that it's there's some very important differences with COVID, and COVID was worldwide very strange and very mysterious. War is something that we're more used to and understand and have some concepts around. So from that perspective, it's different. Nevertheless, there are lots of similarities. And, and part of this similarity is, that, is stress. Uh, the fact that there's attack from Syria and the US, the fact that there are attacks from Yemen, uh, th all of those things are, uh, you know, the Iranians' involvement. Uh, all of this makes lots of people worry that we're at the verge of World War III, and now we're getting into substantial stress. Um, what we got. Um, now, one of the elements one of the elements that we see, so we said that the funnel of misbelief have stress, cognitive, personality, and social. Mm -hmm. One of the elements within social is what we call shibolet. And, and shibolet is a term that comes from a, a, a war tribe in Israel, in the Bible. And there was this tribe, with, uh, the fight between two tribes. And after the, the war, they were settled on different sides of the river. But then as they would walk around, they would meet people. And they would want to know if they are from their group or from the other group. Now, it turns out that these two tribes pronounced the plant name, the, the name of the plant, Shibolet, in a different way. One of them said, Shibolet one of them said, Sibolet. So imagine I would meet you. I don't know which, which part of the tribe you are. And I would say, here's a plant. How do you call it? That's not a plant. <laughs> here's a plant. And if you said it in the same way that I do, I would say, oh, you're a good guy. You're one of us. 
And if you sell it the way the other tribe does it, I'll try to chase you or kill you or do something like this. Mm. Now, we now use the term shibolet as a term in which people don't really say the truth. What they're saying is something about group identity. Right? So when you ask me, how do you call this plant? And I said shibolet, you don't really care about what's the plant's name. You're, you're asking about which tribe are you connected to. And if you look at lots of discussion online, you can see, you could identify lots of discussion as shibolet. You could identify lots of discussion as people not saying the truth. They're saying something to show their loyalty. And not only that, if you belong to a group, you want to say things that are extreme. Right, so um, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple, but uh, so uh, when the war started, I was in Europe. I tried to make my way back to Israel. Um, my flight was canceled. I got to London. My flight there was canceled. But I had the opportunity to go and listen to and attend or view the pro-Palestinian a parade in, in London, the demonstration against Israel. And there were people, there were Palestinian, there were Arabs, there were European, there were British people. And, and they were running around and they were calling to liberate Palestine from the river to the sea. Now, that's basically a call to the annihilation of Israel. The river to the sea is where Israel is right now, calling to take all of this and give it to the Palestinians. It means uh, Israel has to be demolished. Now, do those people really understand what they're saying? Have they thought about that? I don't think so. Or when I see now on college campuses uh, in the U.S. all kinds of young young adults saying things like uh, pro-Hamas. Um, you know, I, I, I would have loved to have a discussion with them and say, you know, if, if you gave Hamas now the control over the Middle East, how exactly would it look? How would it be for kids, for women, for um, homosexuals? Uh, what what are you expecting? Like what what kind of is that really what you want? Now, I know that if all of them thought about it for five minutes, they would say no. That's not a vision for any country. Yeah. Uh, no country should 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 be governed by such uh, dark forces. But but what they're saying is very much shibolet that we have we have created a discourse that is superficial, it's not about the facts, it's not about the way forward, it's just who can shout louder about their identity. And it's a perfectly fine discussion to have if people want to say, I belong to group A, that's perfectly fine. But we need to understand that other people might look at it and say, I'm not questioning how liberal you are. But but now when you're saying, let's let the Hamas control Gaza, is this really what you want? 
let's 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 talk about that. So I think a lot of the discussion is has has turned out to be about identity and very superficial. And you know, as a university professor, it it pains me because yeah. you know, I think I think that one of the things that academic education is supposed to do is supposed to help people see the complexity in everything. Like, you know, here's and nothing in life is so simple, right? Mm -hmm. Even even the question of whether Teslas are good for the environment or not is a complex question. Yeah. Um, you know, if if is getting um is getting coffee from the other part of the world is is a good idea or not? Is donating money I mean Everything is complex, and academics know about it. And every academic student, every student at the university, knows that every topic is deeper and more complex than there is. But but somehow, the classroom learning about complexity and embracing complexity and so on uh, doesn't penetrate the the social discussion partially because of the, the political correctness uh, pressures, partially because the way people express themselves and so on. And, and it has terrible effects. Wow, there's, there's a lot to, to unpack there, Professor. Thank you. And, and so many ideas. And I think the, the, the first one that I, and please correct me if I'm wrong, and also feel free to intertwine. I just want to unpack some of the themes here, overarching themes. I've been thinking about, of course, with this, with what's happening right now with the war, what's happening right now, I've been thinking about how I've often felt that I'm the one in charge of my ideology, that I possess my ideology. But all of a sudden, I've been realizing, and also the Eureka moments emerged while reading Misbelief, so walking in the park and all of that, and then just letting it, letting it simmer a bit. I've noticed that sometimes my ideology possesses me and that ideologies possess people and that we're fighting a war or n not this war in particular, whatever war, we're just waging a, a war for this meme to, to keep living yeah. in our lives. And so the first question I have here is, you know, how, what's the best step using the tools in misbelief and also your expertise to identify if I'm waging a war for an ideology of, or the ideology is waging a war for me. What what is the best proper yeah. step to identify that? Yeah. So it's first of all we have to recognize exactly as you said, right? So, and it's a very it's a very strange thought, but it's to say, okay, let me think about it. At the end of the day, my political ideology is very similar to my parents' political ideology. How how does this happen? Is this random? Or does it mean that I was educated to have this political ideology and maybe if I grew up to different parents, um, even with the same genetic composition, if I was adopted, uh, would I have had different opinions? And would I have very different opinions uh, with the same level of conviction? So, so, for example, uh, one of my convictions 
um, is that the people who are uh, stronger in society um, need to help those who are weaker, right? Um, and it means taxes, it means all kinds of things, right? But I feel very strongly that this is the moral thing to do. Now, it's very hard for me to think that maybe if I was born or raised by different parents, I would have been a pure capitalist that said, no, everybody's out for themselves. Don't take any taxes. I don't owe anybody else everything. Very hard for me to think that I could have been with, with different opinions because my own opinions seem to me so logical and moral and so on. Whereas the other people, how could they think they're, they're moral? But, but of course, uh, other people justify their own position and they think that that's moral and they can't think how I uh, think about that. You know, in the US, the, the, the large, very difficult discussion about abortion rights are exactly like that. The people who are on, on any side feel that that's the moral thing to do. They don't say this, I have these opinions because how I was educated. They say this is moral. Uh, but of course, when you look at it, the correlation between people's and, uh, opinions and their parents' opinions are very high. So it's very hard to argue that it's absolute morality. It is something that comes from But But anyway, what can we do about it? First of all, we need to recognize it. We need to recognize it that we can't just discount the other people, right? If you say, oh, I'm 100% sure I'm moral and this other person on the other side, they're just not moral. The moment you say to yourself, oh, if I, was, if I were to be born to different parents, I, I might have thought like you as well, it changes the picture a little bit. But, but the other phrase I like is a phrase that is called what would it take to change your mind or what would it take to change my mind? And when you ask yourself this question, it basically allows us to figure out which are the things that are actually based on information and which are the things that we just believe in, mm -hmm. right? So if I ask myself the question of what would it take to change my mind on that? Uh, you could say, well, what if all of a sudden, all the Scandinavian countries, <clears throat> you would find out that they, you know, have another problem that they've created. Or you would find out that they are, uh, that they can do it, but only if they have no immigrants. Or that it's all good and well until there's a real would, would it change my mind uh, about, about that? Um, so so it's, a good, it's a good litmus test for basically saying, what are the things that we believe blindly and what are the things that we're truly willing to, to explore and be proven uh, to be wrong about? And part of that equation, Professor, at least for me, and while listening to you and also, you know, while reading Misbelief is that there, there was a moment where I really put everything on a, on a slant of, of judgment. Like, 
what what do I know it's true and I I would like to ask you you know this is the question but then I have to do like a preamble post preamble so it's a weird way of saying it but the question here is is there a line where I can draw where I know what to hold true and really truth and you know there there are some truths that I need to really defend what not not necessarily against other people but like in my identity and for example like I believe dearly that the earth is not flat but people other people do believe that like you say in, in misbelief and so I would like to that's the part one of my question that you know where can I draw that line in the in the sand of truth and untruth and at the same time especially right now with what's happening in the rise of AI that you really discuss in misbelief and all of these images and the way content is being created and most of us spending, and at least my generation, Gen Z, spending most of their times in social media, TikTok, Instagram, being ready to get morally outraged. How can we identify, you know, the truth, true information, or at least distill from my moral outrage, you know, perhaps there's some truth here. How can I dig more into it? And so those are my two questions. And if I confused you, I'm sorry. No, no, no it's fine. No, no, it's fine. They're, they're very different questions, but let me, let, me, let me answer in a confusing way. So, you know, not too long ago, we had the Day of Atonement, right? The people who are not Jewish, this is a day where Jewish people fast. And I uh, usually try to take a day to think about the problem. So I, I fast and I, I, I take one topic that I want to, to resolve for myself. And this year, the, the topic I took upon was whether I think that people are inherently good or inherently bad. And up to now, I basically believe that people are inherently good. And when we see bad behavior, it's because of stupidity or negligence or bad ideology or, you know, you name it. Like, if we take the cookie metaphor, I don't think anybody wanted to get people to be unhealthy. I think it's just a mechanism. It was easy to sell cookies that sells tomato and easy to add sugar and easy to... Uh, and we got there. Um, and I debated... I had lots of experience in the last few years of, of seeing things that I thought were very demonstrating uh, the, the dark side of human nature. Hmm. And, and I asked the question of whether I think I should res resolve that. I didn't finish that discussion with myself, so one day was not enough. And then October 7th came with another uh, set of horrific images, images that uh, you know, I don't think anybody on Hollywood who is creating uh, horror shows have not thought about uh, in, in terms of the, the, the horror that were created. Um, and, and I kept on thinking about this. And, and I'll tell you what. I, I, here is where I am. I feel that the world is worse than I thought it was. I feel that I'm not yet ready to update my belief. So I recognize it, but I'm not ready for it. But I also feel that part of the reason is that I need to believe that the world is a positive place for my motivation. I feel that if I felt that the world was 
dark and evil, it will be very hard for me to wake up and get the energy to try and make things a little bit better. So it's not just about the beliefs. That's what I said, I'll confuse you. It's also about motivation. Um, so, so my sense is that, yes, the world is not as a good place as I thought five years ago. Um, I'm not yet ready to abandon my belief that human nature is inherently good and that we can have a flourishing uh, planet. But I also can't accept that belief, that negative belief about human nature because I feel I need it for my uh, motivation and, and, and well-being. So, so, so I think that's that. And then this, your, second, your second question is about moral outrage. So, you know, when I use the term misbelief in the book, I mean actually a couple of things. I mean that people believe in something that is not correct. But I also mean that they adopt this belief as a very central theme of their life. Imagine that you believe that broccoli is not that healthy. Okay, maybe you're wrong, but you're not adopting it as a central tenant of your life. But if you believe that the earth is flat, for example, that's a very central belief because it means that the NASA is lying to you, and pilots are lying to you, and governments are lying, <clears throat> and the list goes on and on and on. It's a, it's, a very core, it's a very core belief. There's no way not to believe it as a lens from which you watch everything else. And, and this is where some reduction in confidence is very important. So moral outrage starts with being 100% convicted that you're wrong. If you would, that you're right, sorry. But what, what if you're only 98% convicted that you're right? It's not the same, right? So the first thing we need to do is we need to reduce our conviction. As we said, everything is more complex. Has, everything has multiple sides. Um, there's almost never a case where somebody is right and an, another person is wrong. It's always, almost always the case, almost always the case that there's enough fault to, to go around. Um, I'm not talking about car accidents, but you know, mm -hmm. long-term things usually have, are, are usually complex. That's, that's the first one. And, and the second, you know, one of the things that happened to me in this process with this book, is that at some point I realized how difficult it is to be a conspiracy theorist or a misbeliever. Uh, I had a conversation with a woman who, very, very strong misbeliever. And, and I thought about, about her. <clears throat> now, if you believe in God, you believe that the world is usually a good place. God takes care of you. God is a positive entity. Yes, sometimes there's a devil, but mostly it's God. And mostly it's good. But if you're a misbeliever, if you're a misbeliever, then you wake up feeling that Bill Gates and the Illuminati are out there to get you. That are trying to put a G5 chip in you and in your kids and to change your fertility and so on. 
it's an awful way to live. Mm -hmm. and, and when I realized how difficult their lives are, it didn't make it less painful, the attacks, but I did develop some empathy toward them. And I think that if we want to move forward in society, we have to be less than 100% sure in our own opinions, and we have to develop some empathy for the other side of the, of the discussion. Wow, and in the beginning of the conversation, you touched on you know a lot of overarching themes, perhaps in the societal equation of, of you know the funnel of misbelief. There's a lot of moving parts in our society, you know, in inequality. A lot of societal people, this is connected to stress too, but a lot of people being so stressed about their work, finding less meaning in their in their lives, lack of community you touch on, a lot of isolation, all of these themes that we touch on misbelief that really put fuel in the fire of adopting core beliefs, core conspiracy theories, quote-unquote, about yeah. how we navigate in life. And so that's the biggest concern for me is that it's not, it's not slowing down, first of all. And second of all, you know, it's been explicitly said, you know, again, to the, to the present moment that, you know, we're in a war. We don't, and, and, and I would like to add that, you know, of course, you mentioned it, but the uncertainty of it all just add, adds a 3,000-fold equation to the stress because, you know, even though I'm on the other side of the globe, a world war is just a world war. It's, never, it's nothing I've ever lived. The images that we saw on October 7th are things that we've never, I've never seen. Even my, my grandma, who, who takes pretty much 75 to 80% of her time doing Shorashim, you know, the story of our ancestors, the Holocaust, she, she breaks, she breaks down. And so we're in, a, in an uncharted territory. But at the same time, Professor, I want to stress out what you said, you know, building bridges, how do we get to a, a more constructive and how do we live up to your vision of, of the world, which is optimistic and it's positive? And so my question yeah. for you, Professor, is you were courageous enough and resilient enough to go into the, into the villain mode of it all on the story where you were portrayed as this conspiracy thinker and you were trying to control the world and you were looking for revenge and you had the courage to speak to the other side. The other side wasn't as open as as you would imagine they would be. But at the same time, I keep having these conversations with people around my circle that, you know, how do we build a bridge with people who don't want to listen, where emotion has overridden any rationality? And so where we are now, Professor, where people don't want to listen, and I, I'm not there yet, honestly, the courageous side of the of, of, of you, where, where I'm ready to speak to the other side because... They're wearing uh, the, this huge banner that says, if I know your real identity, I'm going to kill you. And so how do we build that courage? And at the same time, how do we build that bridge, Professor? Yeah. So, you know, I, I end the book with a couple of chapters on the importance of trust in society. And the metaphor for trust is, these two fish who swim in the ocean, and one of them says, uh, I don't see any water. And they don't see any water because it's all around them. Um, and trust is, is similar. It's, it's all around us. And because of that, we don't, we don't pay attention to it. But 
the truth is we have to move together as a world. We have some urgent things to do. Um, climate change, poverty, food supply, energy supply, uh, pollution. Um, you know, there are 70 million slaves still in the world. Um, women who are forced to get married. In, I mean, the, 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 the number of things that we have as a, as a world to deal with are very, very large. And, and one of the things we need to, to create is basically trust. We need to, you know, it's, it's what, what all of us would hope the UN would do, right? But, but of course, they're not. Um, but but we, if, we, if we want to move forward, with, we have to. We have to build trust. And, and to build trust, um, one of the things we have to do is we have to listen to the other side, even make them feel hurt. You know, I think that, uh, I'll give you an example. I, I have, I, I know lots of friends from all over the world. I have lots of friends from all over the world, people I know from all over the world. Um, some of them are from Arab countries and from Iran. And I, I got lots of requests to communicate uh, after October 7th. And, and I'm always happy to, to, to talk and, and think and help, if possible, to, to resolve the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the extent that I can. I'm not a politician. But, but after October 7th, I was not willing to resume the discussion as if October 7th did not, did not happen. I basically said, I want you to acknowledge the horrificness of that day. I want you to acknowledge what the Hamas has revealed about itself as an organization on that particular day. I want us to agree that we need to update our understanding about Hamas and crimes against society about that day, and then we can continue. And many of the people I talked to were not able to do that. They were not able to acknowledge the horrendousness of that day. They acknowledged, no, 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 but what about 1948? And what about, you know, let's... Um, that's true for us. It's true for other people. Sometimes we need to acknowledge. Uh, people want to be heard and seen and understood before we can we can move forward. But, you know, as long, like, you know, the discussion about who is more wrong, I never found that to be particularly useful. Oh, you did this in 48, and you did this in 67, and you did this. Okay, you know, how do we, how do we judge? And uh, you kill X, and I killed Y, and you, there's no way for, I, I think that the, the discussions should be about how do we create trust, how we can create a mutual vision for the future, and how do we figure out the barriers to that, to that future. Um, and, and I think that now it's a, just a little too early. We're all mourning, but, but hopefully, hopefully soon we will be able to, to change the discussion and start talking about 
what's, what's our new vision now for the, for the Middle East, but not just for the Middle East, but for the world? Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, it's, it's still early. I think that my, I'm not going to ask that question. The question will be, what, what will be the first step? But again, stressing that out, that there's, there's process to everything. And I think that the, the crisis, the war that's happening right now makes it very, very difficult for, for everything. And, and I'm just hoping that we can live to your, to your vision that the world really runs by, by good rather than bad. And because at the end of the day, you know, there's so much to unleash about our human potential, about everyone's human potential, about their creativity, about our pursuit of, of freedom, of happiness, all of those things that really, I think those are, those were like my, my, my overarching themes while reading Misbelief is that the purpose of your book is not to point any fingers and to say, you did this, you believe in this, you're crazy. It's quite the contrary saying, how did we get here and how can we move from here and how can we rebuild institutions like our government where all of a sudden in, in, in the pandemic was really starking and like you, you, you discuss in misbelief, the trust in government went so, so down, went to the lowest points and yeah. the control of it all and then the conspiracy theories and all of a sudden the conspiracy theories were beginning to look real and then unreal and just all of this confusion, Professor. But like you say, acknowledging where we are, I think it's a very, very important first step. And so, you know, if now that we're beginning to, to wrap up our conversation, I hope to have you again soon because I can show you the evidence. I have 74 points, questions that I want to touch with you about, you know, evolution, evidence, type, uh, you know, a blueprint, you know, uh, the, the experiment that you show about Martin Seligman and, and dogs and all of those themes, Professor. I hope you to have you soon. But if you were right now in college, let's just say that you were again a student, not a professor. How would you like to? How would you engage? Or what would what were what would be some of your guiding principles in navigating this new world where you know people are arguing that we're in the post-truth era of reality, and so. You're a student now. How do you engage with reality, Professor? Yeah, so first of all, I, I think it's a, whether we are in the post-truth era or not, I think it's a terrible idea. I don't think we should be. I agree. And, and I think we need to separate claims about facts from claims about opinions. You know, in social media, it's even worse. If I press like, what is it? Is it that I agree with it? Or is it that I think it's ridiculous, right? All of those things recorded the same way. I, I think that we should very much struggle not to get into a post-truth era. And I think we, we need to create in our language a separation between facts and think and opinion and wishful thinking. Uh, right now, <laughs> we don't separate those, those things. And also, we need a bit more patience uh, with ourselves and with other people. Uh, I think cancel culture is doing a lot of damage to the left. You know, the idea that it's, it's the thought police. Nobody can tell jokes. Nobody can give compliments. Nobody can 
it's 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 we're, we're living in a in a world in which uh everybody is so much on edge everybody is so angry so quick to respond we need to kind of quiet down a little bit you know i i think that one of my leading beliefs in the world has always been that intention matters uh, there was somebody I corresponded with a long time ago. So, you know, my hands are not that good. So, so I send audio messages when I can, so I don't have to type. And sometimes on WhatsApp, I send video messages. Hmm. And quite a few years ago, uh, somebody said, you know, you just record those videos. And even if they don't look right, or, you know, you don't look right, or you stumble, you don't seem to care. How come? And I said, I think it's about the intention. Hmm. When I correspond with you, you know that my intentions are good. Yes, the video is a little bit better, a little worse. I made a mistake and so on. As long as you believe that my intentions are good, everything is going to be okay. And I think that we need to you know, Always assume that the intentions are good. If we can go back to that, that will be very good. And, you know, then whether somebody made a mistake or told a bad joke or did something, it's not going to be the end of the world. So I think, I think that's one of the things that is missing, is the, uh, assuming that intentions are good. The benefit of the doubt sometimes, right? Like you yeah. say, it's just, it's key because... At the end of the Not day, just the we... benefit of the doubt. Assume goodness. Like, it's, it's stronger. Yeah. Assume good intention. Not just, yeah, neutrality. Like, the benefit of the doubt would be like, perhaps they made a mistake, but I, I can assume, you're saying like, as a, as a statement, every single time I engage with someone, I think they're doing it of the right way. That's right. It's, it's not about saying, oh, maybe you didn't mean it the wrong way. No, it's saying... I'm assuming that you meant something positive. And then how do you, let's just say there's a miscommunication there. You assume that they did it right, but something, you know, a bad joke happened. How do you move forward? That's right. Then, then I mean, it's perfectly fine to ask about it. It's very, very fine to, to say something about it, right? But, but the assumption is that um, maybe you didn't understand the social culture. Maybe you heard it some way, but you had a good intention. You didn't mean to offend anybody. You know, if you look at all the tweets that we find now that people wrote in the last 10 years that <laughs> you show to them and so on, you say, how many of those were written with the intention of offending people? How many yeah. of those were written? No, they were written probably with a good intention to share something funny, to have a perspective, to... I think, I think we need to... Assume, assume good intention is a, is a good starting point. I agree, Professor. And I will take that into, you know, into account in my own interactions because, like you say, I'm not a politician. I, I hope I would, I would have a magic wand and that I could create an operating software for everyone that says assume good intentions, but I can't. What I can do, however, is, you know, while reading your book, Misbelief, while listening to you, is just trying to, to embrace those ideals of, of, of you know, assumption of goodness, of questioning, you know, maybe toning down the percentage of, of certainty about things, but at the same time being open about other certainties and, you know, 
trying to drive a conversation that is constructive, not destructive. And I think part of that step towards that reality is having these conversations and your openness to, to them. So, Professor, hope to have you soon again and, and thank you for, for joining me. Anytime and uh, to better days. Thank you. Thank you.